One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. Our themes this week are space, astronomy, and African science. Naledi Pandor, South Africa's science minister, will tell us why her country should host the world's biggest radio telescope. We have a geographic advantage in that we have some of the least interfered with spaces, spaces that allow scientists to just see the sky in the clearest way possible and receive uh, information from the universe, which will allow them to have a better understanding of where we all come from and that mysterious thing called the black hole. And Science Magazine reports on the proliferation of planets around other stars. One in five sun-like stars harbor an Earth-like planet close in. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before we go on, let me welcome my companions in the studio. Both our regulars are here, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, and my FD colleague, Andrew Jack. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. And our special guest this week is Robert Massey, who is Deputy Executive Secretary of the Royal Astronomical Society here in London. Welcome to you, Rob. Hi. So, while we get going, perhaps you could tell us about the Royal Astronomical Society and your role in it. I know it's an ancient society. <laughs> Ancient-ish. It was uh, founded in 1820, uh, and actually, like many of these organisations, founded in an, in an inn. And since that time, it's represented the astronomy and also actually the geophysics community in the UK and, and around the world. I cover things like the media relations policy, uh, but I'm also quite privileged to talk to some of the world's leading researchers and develop their ideas as well. Do you feel that astronomy as a whole is in a healthy state now? If you take it across the world, I, th I think that's true in the sense that we've, we're, we're embracing these very big grand challenges, perhaps about the, you know, from ranging from the origin of the universe through to the whether or not we're alone in the universe, whether or not there is life elsewhere. Uh, the search for Earth-like planets around other stars continues, and I think really it's fair to say it is in a healthy state, at least in the sense we're in very much in a golden age of discovery for the science. Well, we can hear about some of those grand challenges later on in the show. Now let's hear from Naledi Pandor, who was South Africa's education minister from 2004 till last year, and then she became minister for science and technology. She is a passionate advocate of scientific collaboration between Africa and Europe and I interviewed her on her recent trip to Brussels. I started by asking her what she thinks South Africa's scientific strengths and weaknesses are. I think in the area of strengths, we have uh, excellent uh, science-performing institutions in the country, as well as uh, several of our universities that do perform at a very high level. I also think some of the achievements we've had, particularly in the health sciences, are noteworthy. You know, we had the first... Uh, heart transplant, we contributed to the development of the MRI scan, and therefore there are areas in which I think South Africa has been a significant player. Weakness number one is human capital. We don't have enough of the trained human resources. Therefore, 
we do need to produce more young people able to become the future researchers of South Africa. How can you encourage the young people? You need to popularize science. You need to enthuse young people. So what we do have is a very active youth into science strategy where uh, annually we host a National Science Week uh, where schools are invited to participate. We also have annual Olympiads in science. We have winter schools. So it's a whole range of interventions uh, that we're trying to put in place. We develop mobile laboratories because many of our schools don't have proper laboratories. We try and get books into schools to assist young people. So it's a lot of things that we, we do. But there's a big big, big gap to make up because the old apartheid regime was particularly bad at stopping black people going into science, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. The uh, infamous apartheid uh, Prime Minister Farfut, uh, when he was uh, Minister of Bantu Education, introduced uh, in a parliamentary budget speech this Bantu education. And part of his uh, uh, statement recorded in Hansard was that blacks since they would always be laborers, would have no use for mathematics and science and thus would not be taught these subjects because they would be hewers of wood uh, and carriers of water. So all that uh, was needed was the labor. We're seeing the impact of that uh, in South Africa today. Now, I know you have a science and technology action plan for South Africa with five priority areas. One that particularly interests me is space science and astronomy. What are you hoping for there? Well, you know, everybody uh, always fights with me. Why are you focusing on space science and astronomy? It's very peculiar. Nobody's interested in that. With space science, we're really looking at satellite technology and also how we can use space science in global uh, uh, change, in monitoring uh, climate change, understanding weather patterns and so on, and working uh, uh, with the rest of the continent Uh, to develop our ability in both uh, producing and utilizing information gathered from small satellites. With respect to astronomy, we have many very good uh, astronomy scientists in our country, and we already have excellent facilities, such as Southern Africa's uh, largest uh, telescope, which is called SALT. We believe that as South Africa, we have a geographic advantage in that we have some of the least interfered with spaces in the country, very large spaces, unexplored, not much human habitation, and thus uh, spaces that allow scientists to just see the sky in the clearest way possible and receive uh, information from the universe, which will allow them to have a better understanding of where we all come from and that mysterious thing called the black hole. Now, that leads me to ask you about this proposed global mega project, the Square Kilometre Array, which you and your colleagues hope will be based in South Africa. What what would that mean and what does that involve? The uh, Square Kilometre Array will be a huge radio telescope that is able to receive large amounts of data through probing uh, the universe. If we're able to win the bid to host this radio telescope, it will be a real boon for Africa. Uh, We've uh, uh, put it as a bid, not just of South Africa, but seven other African countries. So it's an Africa bid. It's supported by all countries on the African continent because they regard 
Africa having a mega global instrument for pursuing radio astronomy is a really big, big advantage for the continent. A lot of very interesting points made by Naledi Pandor. Let's pick up on the last point, the square kilometre array. Robert, do you think this project will ever go ahead? It sounds so <laughs> ambitious, the spending two billion or so. The contest is between Africa and Australia, New Zealand. How do you rate its prospects and where do you think it will end up? When you build an instrument of that type, you want to site it in the best place in the world on scientific grounds more than anything else. And I think that's why some of the earlier sites in the Northern Hemisphere, China was proposed at one point, for example, were ruled out simply because they weren't the best place to put it. I'm fairly confident this one will go ahead. It's got a lot of international partners on board. There's no reason to believe that they would uh, renege on that commitment at this point. As for the prospects for South Africa, well, they're as, they're as good as Australia in that sense. I mean, they've both got the advantage of being large enough countries, large enough geographical areas that can site the telescopes in the way you need. But uh, other than that, they're, they're both very well placed. The Australians argue that if it were decided on purely scientific grounds, it would go to Australasia. But you could if you wanted to justify an African sighting on developing science grounds. Is, is that fair comment? That's that's very fair comment, and I suppose it's part of the mix of the decision-making process. But most people, I think, would be more comfortable with using the scientific grounds for it. Now, the, I, I don't think in any way that really disadvantages South Africa. I mean, yes, OK, they don't have the, the large-scale desert that Australia does, but on the other hand, they have got plenty of the country where there isn't that kind of interference with the, the antennae that you, you would say if you, you would have if you, say, try to site it in Europe. Before we get on to her more general points about science in South Africa, just tell us what the Square Kilometre Array will do if it's built. Why will it be such a desirable instrument? The great thing about radio telescopes is that they can see things at incredibly high resolution. Now, if you think back to the kind of things that you might be familiar with, say, in the UK, or the, like the Jodrell Bank Observatory, big dish, but actually it doesn't see things that clearly and the reason is that radio waves are long wavelength and to get high resolution to see images sharply you need very very or what is effectively a very very big dish now in radio astronomy the great thing is that you can do that just by separating a number of antennae over a big baseline so if they're thousands of kilometers apart you effectively simulate a telescope that is thousands of kilometers wide and it allows you to see the universe in really exquisite detail so you can look at, say, the centre of galaxies and uh, the, the jets that come out of black holes, and you can see all of those on very, very fine uh, spatial scales. And that's why, why radio astronomy is such a good way to look at the wider universe, and that's why we build these grids of antennae rather than just concentrating on one or two big ones. OK, stepping back from that project, do you think she's right to be pushing for more spending on space science and astronomy? Well, I mean, South Africa is a good example of a country that historically always had a very good base in this area. I mean, of course, you know, it's quite a point to the unhappy history of that in the recent past. But nonetheless, it's got a very strong uh, foothold to, to move up in the world. Um, it's got the South African Large Telescope, which is very much a world-class observatory, the South African Astronomical Observatory, the overarching body, all of these things do fantastic work. Um, and actually, the International Astronomical Union, which is the, the overarching body for astronomy across the world, and the, the RAS is affiliated to that, recently made the decision to invest in South African astronomy development. They want to spend €1 million Euros on establishing an, an office there, really, to, to drive astronomy across the whole of Africa. Diana, what do you think can be done to build up scientific capacities in South Africa? Well, I think uh, many learned societies, like Royal Astronomical Society, worry about a brain drain. So what everybody's looking at is how can we help those countries develop their 
internal science facilities and um, develop the qualified scientists rather than encourage them to come over here and join our university teams. So the sorts of things that they can do is mentoring, offering travel scholarships, encouraging and, and giving opportunities for African scientists to share in the work elsewhere, particularly in Europe. So there's lots of bursaries and those sorts of things available. Um, visiting science programmes where they exchange scientists in different um, uh, university departments largely. Um, e-mentoring is growing and that's um, developing almost bottom-up as individual scientists get in touch with departments and like-minded scientists abroad and obviously the internet helped that. They're beginning to share online their historical libraries and their journals, providing those free. Um, but at the other end of the scale, you've got... Um, the Institute of Physics, for example, is putting a lab in a box for Africa and providing a training manual, and they claim that you can teach practical A-level science from the box they provide for schools in Tanzania. So it's a whole range of things. Andrew, stepping further away from astronomy, what do you make of health research in South Africa? They've got into a terrible tangle over HIV-AIDS, haven't they? Yes, I mean, obviously, in terms of public health policy and the attitude of the previous administration in particular over um, entry and use and funding for antiretroviral drugs, in particular for HIV, there was a pretty disappointing attitude, which happily seems to have changed. And it does seem to be the amongst the comparative advantages of South Africa, obviously, are a lot of those things where you're trying to develop medicines and approaches to diseases that uh, are actually a very high incidence on the ground, in the same way as their apparent comparative geographical advantages in astronomy and so on. That's very healthy. Although I do wonder, Robert, you know, and in a sense, you, you face the same challenge in a different way. You know, the big abstract, huge capital investment for very sort of long-term science like that. How much of a tension even, even in Britain is that, you know, defending astronomy against medical research or something where there's apparently a much shorter-term return? I, I think the answer is there's always a tension and it's something we face and we argue for. I mean, what I would say in our defence is that if you invest in astronomy, you do see benefits actually on sometimes quite short time scales too. I mean, good examples of that, uh, although it's very multifaceted and the inputs are very complicated, are things like the development of the GPS network, the uh, fact that radio astronomy actually is responsible for the development of Wi-Fi as well. You know, a lot of technologies that you take for granted arrive in quite unexpected ways. Um, and that serendipitous side of development is very important. Yeah, happily a historical chapter, but I thought uh, the minister's point, uh, a reminder of, you know, education only for future wood hewers and so on is a, is a chilling exactly. example of how one shouldn't be too focused on current vocational priorities. Right. And if you, if you adopt a purely utilitarian approach, then you probably miss out on some of those opportunities downstream. Now we're going to stick to the theme of space and astronomy and hear from Robert Frederick and Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. In contrast to planet formation theory... Andrew Howard and colleagues reported in a paper in the latest issue of Science that one in five sun-like stars harbor an Earth-like planet close in. We think that low-mass planets like the Earth are relatively common. And that means that if they're common, they're nearby. And that means that future missions that are going to try to hunt for these Earth twins probably don't have to look that far. They can just examine a modest sample of nearby sun-like stars. Howard is an astronomer at the University of California, Berkeley. I don't think this requires a total rewriting of the theory, but it definitely needs some refinement around the edges to match our observations. The observations Howard and his team made were of 166 sun-like stars within 80 light-years of Earth. 
Over a period of five years, the team measured the radial velocities for each star at least 20 times. That told the team about any wiggle of a star as it moved toward or away from Earth. And that's evidence that a planet is orbiting, tugging on its parent star. In total, 33 planets were detected around 22 stars that were in the team's sample, with some of the team's planets detected by other teams of researchers. 16 of these planets are very close to their parent stars, including five low-mass planet candidates. It's the first quantitative assessment of the frequency of Earth. Prior to this, it's just based on models or guessing. Sarah Seeger is an astrophysicist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is not affiliated with the paper. I grilled Andrew Howard after I read the paper, and I actually did have a number of questions, and he answered all of them. So I would say that they definitely had to make a number of different assumptions, and all these assumptions are approximations, but none of them are hugely significant to getting the final answer. But it's important to note that these Earth-like planets are close in to their parent star and so not likely to support life. Again, study author Andrew Howard. So they're inside the orbit of Mercury if you were to put them in our own solar system. That means that they're probably very hot, you know, much hotter than Earth, and therefore perhaps incompatible with life as we know it on the Earth. But astrophysicist Sarah Seeger is excited about the results because planets close to their parent stars suggest other planets further out, and so could be in what's commonly called the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, but where an Earth-like planet could have liquid water and so possibly support life. For almost every kind of planet that we have been able to measure, the more massive kinds, there appear to be many more of them out near the Goldilocks region or beyond than really close to the star. So I'm really excited about the result because we can guess that there are more Earths in the Goldilocks zone than there are really close to the star. So this is good news for us. And Howard and Seeger, along with perhaps the whole astronomical community, expect more good news in February. That's when NASA releases more observational data from its Kepler mission, which should confirm Howard's team's result. Again, astrophysicist Sarah Seeger. Well, we love to extrapolate and we love to speculate, really seeing is believing. And most scientists will not come out and agree on anything until we actually have the real data. So we'll take more data. But right now, the Kepler Space Telescope is in space in an Earth-trailing orbit, looking at one field of stars of 150,000 sun-like stars for three and a half years. And Kepler's job is to tell us the frequency of Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits around sun-like stars. So this paper, the results today, are giving us the first glimpse and Kepler should give us the answer that we're really looking for. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to Science and AAAS. So, Robert, in the studio, is it generally accepted now in the world of astronomy that there will turn out to be billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxies? Well, it's a good, I mean, the precise number is hard to say, but I'd certainly say that there will be an abundance of Earth-sized planets found around other stars. That Now, the question, the big question is whether or not they're frequently in the right place around their stars, in the Goldilocks zone referred to in the report, where the temperature is right for liquid water to be abundant, because too cold means you've got an ice world, and too hot means that the water doesn't flow as liquid, so it's, it's not very conducive to life, at least uh, the, the kind of life we're familiar with now. There has been a couple of recent discoveries of planets which almost fit this category, one of them slightly too big or slightly bigger than the Earth and, and could, but could still be habitable and is in its Goldilocks zone. So we, we are seeing the first of these discoveries. And I suppose 
sticking my neck out, um, I would say within the next few years, as these missions deliver their results, we should get the really more solid evidence for these worlds and actually also within a decade or so see the first pictures of them as well. If we get the um, the European Extremely Large Telescope up and running, then that would be capable of seeing some of these planets if they exist around around stars that are relatively close to the sun. And that will further enthuse young people to go into astronomy, won't it? I mean, nothing could be more exciting. Well, I mean, if you can see these worlds, you could even possibly just uh, discover whether whether they have the presence of life on them as well, because um, it's unlikely, we'll, you know, we're not going to get pictures of plants, animals directly, but what we can see is the impact they have on the atmospheres of the planets. And if you find uh, evidence for lots of free oxygen, lots of liquid water, perhaps within it, if you're really sticking your neck out with an advanced civilization pollution in the atmosphere. Uh, but these things are the, are the signals of life on these, on these worlds, and that's what's quite well, fantastically exciting. I mean, it, w- it would be a very, very big discovery if we find hints of a world with lots of oxygen and water vapor in its atmosphere. A lot of astrobiologists say that, well, they're, they're quite confident about the presence of simple life elsewhere. They're much less confident about civilizations. What's your bet, Robert? Is there life, <laughs> intelligent life in outer space? More well, likely than I the mean, the, uni- the universe is so big, it seems almost inconceivable. There isn't intelligent life somewhere in the universe, but then the universe is so, so big, it's a pretty easy bet to make. Um, whether or not it's very common in our galaxy is, is I think, something we're, we're close to answering. I suspect if you were to go forward 100 years, we'd have a pretty good idea, actually. And if you go forward 10 or 20 years, we'll have seen places where that life could exist. Whether or not it's there is another matter. Well, on that exciting note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating tales about the worlds of science. All that's left is for me to thank my studio guests, Robert Massey, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.